Hello and welcome to the Trail Magic Podcast, where we seek to equip college students with resources, biblical teaching, and helpful conversations for the journey ahead. On this week's episode, it's the second installment of the summer's teaching series on prayer. Listen in as Josh explores what it means to call God our Father in Heaven. This is a radical reality in the life of every true believer in Christ. We hope this summer teaching series strengthens and encourages you in your walk with Christ. Let's hit the trail. All right, I've got our text for this uh, this evening memorized, so I'm going to just quote it for you. So Matthew chapter 6 says, Our Father in heaven. I'm going to stop there. How's it? So um, so we're going to be talking about the beginning of uh, what uh, Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be talking about uh, what it means to call him our Father in heaven. Um, So in 1510, a 27-year-old Catholic monk named Martin Luther uh, took a trip to Rome at the recommendation of one of his friends. And he was, you need to understand, at this point in his life, he was still seven years away from nailing the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, uh, which would kickstart the Reformation. While he was in Rome, though, uh, Luther climbed a set of stairs known as the Holy Stairs. You climb these on your knees. Um, These are said to be the marble staircase from Pontius Pilate's first century palace uh, where Jesus was tried in Jerusalem. Um, It's said to be the same stairs that Jesus would have climbed. Um, Supposedly they were found and brought back to Rome in the fourth century, so like 300 and some years after Jesus' time, along with the supposed true cross that was found. Uh, All of these relics were brought back uh, to Rome, the Catholic Church was just amassing them because there was an interest in uh, relic gazing in order to decrease your time in purgatory they were teaching. And so I think it was Frederick the Wise, I think, he had 18,000 relics he had collected. And I think one of those was like a pinky bone, supposedly, from Jesus' mother Mary. And you could make these pilgrimages to these places and view these relics, and it would decrease either your time in purgatory or a deceased loved one's time in purgatory. This is what the Catholic Church was teaching. And so when Luther nails the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, he wasn't doing it defiantly. He was trying to reform the church as a part of the Catholic Church because he was a Catholic monk himself. He wasn't, he was just asking for a debate. I just want to talk through this with you guys, not interested in a firestorm. Instead, what happened is the Protestant Reformation. So back to our story. In Luther's day, you could visit Rome and you could climb the stairs and on each step of the stairs of this staircase, you would stop and you would say the uh, pater noster, or pater noster rather, which is Latin for our father. So you would say the Lord's Prayer. They called it the Our Father. And so the Catholic Church taught that as you go your, your way up these steps and you stop a little bit at a time on each step and you say the pater noster, the Our Father, it would decrease the amount of time that your deceased loved one would spend in purgatory, which is a place, kind of like a holding tank where you're purified from your sin before you go to heaven. It was crazy. But see, the Bible was in Latin, and so nobody could read it who was just part of the peasantry. So the, the people in charge of the church in Rome were just telling them whatever they wanted to tell them. It was a corrupt, chaotic mess. So Luther's parents were still living at this point, so this is a problem for Luther. Not because he wanted his parents to die, but because he wanted this trip to Rome to count for something. And he couldn't think, you know, man, if, if, 
my trip to Rome to climb the stairs is not going to count for my parents. Like, who's it going to count for? And then he realized his grandfather had passed away. And so he thought, okay, great, that's what I'll do. I'll climb these steps on my knees, and I'll do this on behalf of my deceased grandfather. This will decrease his time in purgatory. Now, you need to understand, Luther was brilliant. Luther was learned. Luther was teaching the Bible. Luther was an exceptional guy, great, great thinker. Uh, he was a lawyer, in fact, by training and trade. Um, and so he stopped and said the Lord's Prayer 28 times from his knees. And when he got to the top, this thought haunted him. As his knees touched the cool marble, he thought, maybe what they have been telling me all along about this business is really not going to work at all. Maybe the Catholic Church is not telling me the truth in what they are promising. And so later on, as you know the story, he goes on to rail against the practices of the Catholic Church Things like looking at relics and saying the Our Father a certain number of times to decrease time in purgatory. I share all of that with you to say this, that that is exactly how people today still treat the Lord's Prayer. They treat it a lot of times like a religious recitation or they'll treat it like a chant. Um, for me personally, I did not learn the Lord's Prayer at home. I did not learn the Lord's Prayer in church. I didn't really come from much of a church family. We just popped in once or twice a week sometimes. Um, I learned the Lord's Prayer uh, in, a, in, a, in a pack of testosterone-charged high school wrestlers before a wrestling match. And so we all dove into the center of the mat, and we put our hands in the middle of this pile. And here I am, ninth grade, 14 years old, 103 pounds, soaking wet. I piled my hand in here, and I'm looking around at all these really tough-looking guys. And the two meanest mugs, the most ungodly dudes on the team, the captains of the team, would lead us in the Lord's Prayer right before we began to wrestle. Our Father... Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I'm sitting here like, what are we doing? What is going on? And I, I mean, I was totally bum-fuzzled at why we're, we're just warming up and hurting each other as a sport. And now we're saying the Lord's Prayer and the guys leading it, their lives don't match up at all with what we're saying. What are we doing? And I didn't even have much of a uh, church background at that point. But that's how we treated the Lord's Prayer. We obviously were missing the point in what this prayer is. And so the Lord's Prayer is not something you say before a wrestling match, but you can, okay? It's not just a religious recitation, but you can recite it. It's not just a chant, but people have chanted it. The Lord's Prayer is a model for every follower of Jesus who wants to grow in their understanding and in their practice of prayer. Man, there's all kinds of books on this one prayer. It is an incredible, incredible prayer. But tonight I want to spend just a few minutes looking at, looking at the first part of it, which is our Father in heaven. So last week, if you were here, if you missed, I'm going to give you a recap. But John locked in on uh, this idea of paying attention to who we're talking to. So I was sitting over here, and uh, John, at the end of his message, walks over to me, if you guys remember, and he goes, Josh, I just want to thank you for this meal that you fixed. You're Josh right now. I just want to thank you for this meal that you fixed for me. And I remember sitting there and thinking, I have no idea what meal he's talking about. Maybe Carrie fixed him a meal, and I didn't know it, you know. And it was all a part of like a setup for the point he was making that Heather, his wife, and his daughter Bethany had fixed this meal. It wasn't Josh. It was someone else. But he had forgotten momentarily who he was talking to. He needed to pay attention to who he was talking to. And that was the example that he gave. Uh, and it was a fantastic example. And I think we need to think about who we are actually talking to. And so to do that, that's my entire point tonight, is I want you to think about 
who you are talking to. I want to make three observations on these first four words of uh, the pater noster, the uh, Lord's Prayer. The first point I want to make about our Father in heaven, or our Father who art in heaven, if you learned it in the King James, is this. The first point is this. Calling God our Father, not your Father, but calling God our Father is a radical thing in itself. It's a radical thing that if you have spent any time in church, you're, you're totally lost on it probably. It just passes right over you completely. A friend of mine in my youth group always used to pray and use the word Father like a filler word. And I didn't put his name in here in case he listened to this, but he might know who it was, but uh, he, he might recognize himself. But when he would pray, he would just uh, put father in there like uh or um, you know, just all over the place. One time I was in class here at App, and there was this girl in, my, in one of my religion uh, classes, and she could not get through a five to six minute speech without repeating the word um over and over. So one time I stopped listening, and I started tallying how many times she said um. <laughs> I was a comm major. I didn't have a lot else to do, you know. And so, sorry, Noah. Um, and so 256 times this girl said um in about a seven-minute speech, 256 times. And that's how my friend would pray when he used the word Father. He would literally say something like this. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, Father, for your blessings, Father, and for your love, Father. Thank you, Father, for the... You know, you're like, what, what are you talking about right now? Like, I'm totally lost because you're just dropping this filler words in here. But the name Father, the designation, the position of a father in this prayer is not meant to be a filler word like uh or um. It is a powerful word that is loaded with all kinds of meaning that we need to slow down and not just blaze past it and think about who we're talking to. Throughout history, there is not one example, not one, of a Jewish writer speaking to God directly as Father until you get to the 10th century A.D. So basically a thousand years other than Jesus, you don't find any Jewish people calling God directly their Father. But when Jesus prayed, in every prayer except for one, and that was when he hung on the cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even then I think he says, Father, later on, Father, forgive them. He used the word Father, and this is how he taught us to pray. So when his disciples come to him and said, teach us to pray, he could have sent them to the psalm book, right? He could have said, go pray the Psalter. But instead, he says, this is how you ought to pray. This is a model for prayer. He taught us to call God our Father. See, the Jews regarded God as this far-removed, distant, stern judge who sat in the high and holy place. And we might call that God's transcendence, in a sense. His farawayness, his other thanness, his holiness, his separateness. And, and in, in a lot of ways, the, the Bible teaches that. When you think about the high priest, the high priest could only go into the presence of God how many times a year? One time a year before Jesus came and made a way by the, the veil tearing on the cross, you know, for us to come to the Father directly. So it truly is a startling concept. Think about who you're talking to. When you call God your Father in heaven, you are, you are claiming a relationship. You're not just saying this is who you are. You're claiming that you belong to Him. You're saying, you're my Father, I'm your child. You're claiming a relationship with the Almighty, Eternal, Majestic, and Holy God of the universe. That's an incredible claim. That's a radical claim. And I think it's lost on a lot of us who begin our prayers, 
Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the Father, for the weather, Father, for the, for the chicken nuggets that Michael was making for me, Father. Like, we just, like we, we just throw it in there all over the place, right? R.C. Sproul says this. I love your chicken nuggets, but R.C. Sproul says this. He says, nothing will condition your prayer life more deeply than remembering you're talking to the sovereign creator and ruler of the universe. Like nothing will flavor your prayer life. Nothing will condition it. Nothing will change it. Nothing will shape it like remembering who you're talking to. You're not just talking to me. You're not talking to each other. You're talking to the almighty holy God of the universe who you get to claim as your father if you are in Christ. So it stops us from just strolling in casually. Hey God, what's up? Listen, I got something I want to talk to you about, you know. And I'm going to be honest. I want you guys to at least consider it. If you disagree with this statement, that's totally fine. I'm not a big fan of the, hey God, it's me, way that some people pray. Because I think it's, it's, it's too flippant. I think it's too casual. Listen, intimate does not equal casual. Intimate does not equal casual. I think it's totally okay to go to God in an intimate way. You know, we're to call him our Abba Father, but just kind of strolling in, you know, hey God, like you would say, hey Seth, you know, hey Logan, hey Emily Beth. I, I, I'm not sure that we are understanding who we're talking to. If you disagree with that, that's totally fine. I just want you to at least consider that thought maybe as an application for our first point. Our second point, I got an amen, man. All right, second point. There is a strong emphasis on community in this prayer. There's a strong emphasis on community in this prayer. In the West, religion is considered one of those things that's like, that's private. You know, you hear religion and politics. I don't talk about those things. They're private matters. Here's the thing. The Bible teaches that our relationship with God is a personal matter. It never says it's a private matter, ever. Big difference between having a personal relationship with God but being private about it. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that we call God our Father. Do you see the personal pronoun in Matthew chapter 6? It says He is our collective corporate Father. So we can pray this privately, but it is a communal petition as well. So think about this. When we are saved, we are saved into a community of believers. We're saved into a kingdom where we get a new citizenship. You're a citizen, one among many. When you're saved, you are saved into God's family. When, when we're put into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit that, that applies that to us, you become a part of the body. You're not just an isolated, detached eyeball rolling around seeing things. You know, If you're a hand or if you're a foot in the body of Christ, or if you're an ear, or if you're a pinky toe, like you belong to something other than yourself, and we call on God as our Father. So we need to understand that. He's our Father, if you're in Christ. He's not my Father. He's not your Father. He is, the Bible says, our Father. We belong to Him together. So when we face issues, when you go through things, like Carrie spent a whole weekend with her mom. Her mom is struggling, declining with ALS. What she's facing is not an isolated thing that she deals with on her own. You all, as a part of the family of God, ought to bear that burden with her. Galatians 6 and verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we call on Him together as our Father. I will also add in here, I put this in because I think what we have going on in our country right now is driving me crazy. Because some, some, some terrible hate-filled actions 
are leading to other people compounding more sin on top of sin. What happened to George Floyd was sinful. It was hate-filled. It was not from a heart filled with God's love and, and, and whatever. But, but listen, we don't need to compound sin on top of sin by continuing to be angry at other people. There's a, a gospel coalition is calling us to pray next Saturday night, I think it is, a night of prayer for what's going on in our country. And when you think about it, if we're saved into a new family, we're saved into something that includes every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And that word nation in the Greek means ethne, or the word is ethne, rather, where we get our word ethnicity. Every ethnicity, every language, every tribe, every people on the earth, there will be some representative, the Bible tells us, gathered around the throne in heaven. So this right now, what we're seeing is where the gospel is the only thing. Pastor Scott talked about it this morning when he talked about peace. Some people think about peace like stop the riots, you know, or, or lay down your guns if you're hating each other. That's not peace. Remember the word shalom I taught you? is not just the absence of bad, but it's the wholeness and the fullness of good. The gospel is the only thing that brings that. It's the only thing that brings lasting peace and fullness and unity together to heal the divide that we're seeing right now. There's nothing else that's going to do it. I saw this when I preached in Nicaragua and when I preached in Honduras. I had the privilege, one time it was thrown at me, they said, uh, hey, do we have any youth pastors in the room? And I was serving as a youth pastor at Grace Community down in Marion, children's and youth. And uh, we were in Nicaragua and he said, or Honduras, and he said, uh, we have any youth pastors in the room. And I kind of tried to duck down like this right here, you know. And all of my group is about this size. They all turned and point at me. And we had the largest group. And I was like, dang, man. And so I had to like, you know, kind of whip up this message together. It was an amazing experience. Terrible sermon. Amazing experience, though, as I looked out at these brown-skinned, brown-eyed, dark-haired brothers and sisters in Christ who were calling on the same Father that I was calling on. I'm preaching about the same Jesus that died for them. And it doesn't matter who has more melanin in their skin. We belong to the same family because we've been saved by the same Christ. He is our Father. So if I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, then we share the same Heavenly Father. But how? How? And that's where number three comes in. It leads me to my last point is this. We are not born into His family. We are adopted into His family. Think about that. We're not born into his family. We're adopted into his family. I said this one time in the church that I used to pastor at, and I think somebody took issue with it. I said, uh, not everyone is a child of God. Ladies' eyebrows kind of went up, you know, like, excuse me? (laughs) And I said, we're all special creations of God. Everybody's made in his image, but you can't be a child of God unless you have been brought to the Father through Jesus. We are adopted into the family. This is one of the most important doctrines in the New Testament. But see, the sad thing is we take doctrine a lot of times and we're like, either I don't understand it or I don't have time for it or, or whatever our excuse is, and we shelve it in favor of statements that we hear in pop culture, things like, we're all God's children. You won't find that in the Bible. It's not in the Scripture. When the Bible talks about the fatherhood of God, it's talking about people who are sons and daughters of the Father through adoption. Ephesians chapter 2 says that at one time, all of us were children of what? Wrath. Not children of our Father. We were children under the wrath of God, under the sentence of God. But then Galatians 3 tells us, 
when we're in Christ, we're all sons of God. Now, you need to understand sons generally. Sons in that day, in that culture, were the ones who received the inheritance. So we're all sons and we're daughters in God, the Scripture tells us. In fact, I think it's Galatians that says that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, slave, Scythian, barbarian. We're all one in Christ and Christ is in all. And so we need to understand when we call God our Father, we're calling Him our Abba, it's because we've been adopted into His family. We weren't naturally born there. We were reborn there. We were born again. Uh, so a great book I have up in my office. If anybody's interested, I have some extra copies. Uh, it's by John Lachelle, actually. It's called Practical Bible Doctrine. If you want to brush up on your Bible doctrine or you're discipling someone and you're like, I would love to talk with someone through what the basic you know, understanding of the gospel is in the Christian life, great book. I want to give you a quote from it. It should be on the screen behind me. Super helpful. I want you to consider this. By justification, God counts us righteous. By adoption, he makes us his children. Justification releases us from the courtroom of the judge. Adoption takes us home and makes us heirs of all the Father's riches. Why are Christians so crazy about adoption? Why do Christians love adoption? Because if you're in Christ, it's because you've been adopted into the family. Picture what I just said. Okay, when you're in the courtroom and you're guilty before God, Christ took your punishment. So the handcuffs come off and you walk out of the courtroom scot-free. Somebody else took your punishment, but you don't stay outside on the street, a dirty homeless beggar with nowhere to go. You're adopted in and you're somebody comes and takes you by the hand and leads you home and says, here, come into my place. Let me feed you. Let me care for you. Let me provide for you. Let me love you. Let me encourage you. That's what happens in the gospel. That's why the doctrine of adoption can't be missed. It can't be overlooked. It, it can't be downplayed. It, it, it's why we are in the family. We are adopted into the family. And so we don't start out as his children. You actually started out as his enemies. And I've, I've begun talking to my kids about this in gentle language, you know, and talking to them. And, and I'm like, you guys are enemies of God. No, no, I don't know. You know, but I try to explain this to them, and they kind of look at me like, what? What are you talking? You lost your mind, Dad. Like, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm trying here, you know. But that's what we're all born with. We're born into sin. But when the blood of Christ covers us, we're taken home. We're treated like Jesus as sons and daughters of the King. Galatians 4 is a key text on adoption. I want you to listen to verses 4 through 7. When the time came to completion, God sent His Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That's all of us. So that we might receive what? One word. Adoption. Adoption. Good. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, there's your new status. Because you receive adoption, because your new status is a son, verse 6, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, which is just a simple word, meaning Father. A child can pronounce it, a simple little word, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. You're going to receive everything that belongs to the Father. R.C. Sproul points out that every time we pray this prayer, Every time, it ought to remind us of our new standing with God. Every time you call God your Heavenly Father, our Father, 
who art in heaven. Every time you say that, you ought to remember, I, I was in the orphanage and God brought me home. I was in the courtroom and God set me free. I belong to him because of the gift of adoption. When you think about that, that ought to change the way you pray. If God is your father, no, no, no. If God is what? Our father. If God is our father, then here's what that means. You have access to him. Last night in the middle of the night, 1.37 a.m., a.m., I hear a little voice cry out, Daddy, I need you. That's exactly what Micah said. He'll be three in September. Daddy, I need you. Immediately, I woke up, right? Carrie puts in long, hard hours during the day. She sleeps hard at night. <laughs> so I, I sleep a little lighter, and I jump out of the bed. I run in there, and he's curled up behind the curtain. I don't know why, but he had wet the bed, <laughs> and he, he needed me. And so I kind of brush the sleep out of my eyes a little bit, and I change his sheets, and I take his clothes off, and I take him to the bathroom, and I, I tuck him back in, and I put him to bed. As soon as he called my name, the daddy in me just woke up. I, it's the weirdest thing. I used to sleep real hard. I used to could lay down on this floor and just go to sleep, right? Now, I lay there and listen for my kids, and if they call out to me, I hear them. All he said was, Daddy, I need you, and I was right there. Like, that's what we're calling God our Father. We have access to Him. It also means we're cared for, we're loved, and we're provided for. It also means you don't have to live in fear, right? Perfect love casts out fear. What kind of fear? Well, the pagans were afraid of their deities, their gods. All they wanted to do was appease them or please them. So they would offer all kinds of crazy sacrifices, sexual sacrifices, child sacrifices, all kinds of things to appease their gods because they were afraid of their gods. It was a distant, servile kind of relationship. But perfect love, when you belong to God in Christ, all that's cast out. And you fear God with a holy fear, a respect and a reverence for Him, but you know Him as your Father. If He's our Father, it also means we don't walk in loneliness. He's promised to never reject us. If we're our Father, you may be dirt poor in this world, but you are rich in the things of Christ. Rich. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 50. Our Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean the thousand and one hill? He doesn't own those cattle? No. The word thousand just is a number of, of hugeness, bigness, completion. He owns all the resources in the world. It all belongs to Him. And if you belong to the Father, then here's what it means. It settles the matter of authority. Who's in charge? Dad. Dad's in charge. Right? Our Heavenly Father is in charge. So if he says, if you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commands. And what that means is this. You're not in charge of your life anymore. I'm not in charge of my life, my finances, my relationship with my wife, how I parent my children, what I preach, how I spend my time. You're not in charge of those things. If the Father is your Father, our Father, then he is in charge. Now, I know I'm over time. But let me close with this helpful reminder from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to this. Take these two things together. Never separate these two truths. You are approaching the almighty, eternal, ever-blessed, holy God. But remember also that that God in Christ has become your father, who knows all about you as a father knows about his child. He knows what is good for his child. So Lloyd-Jones says, Put these two things together. God in his almightiness is looking at you with a holy love and knows your every need. He hears your every sigh and loves you with an everlasting love. 
He can bless you with all the blessings of heaven. He put them all in Christ and he put you into Christ. So before you begin to pray, remind yourself that you, even you, he says, someone such as yourself is in the presence of your Father who is in heaven. So here's my question. I'm done. How would it change your prayer life this week? How would it change your prayer life this week if before you prayed, you stopped to take a minute to reflect on God as our Father? You're not alone. You belong to people across the world who are calling on the same Heavenly Father. How would it change the, the confidence that you have in prayer as you come to Him? How would it change how you pray for other people and their needs when you're coming to our Father? He's, he's your Father, but He's our Father, and you need to pray for somebody else. How would it change your prayer life this week if you really, really paid attention to who you are talking to? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. I'm just so encouraged that I don't have to stand up here and come up with things to say because i got nothing to say. But I'm amazed that every time I open your word, it's like a just like an old 3D book I used to look at when I was a little kid. It just pops up and it's like dynamically looking me in the face. I think James even talks about looking into the perfect law and not for going away and forgetting what we have seen, but remembering it and being obedient, not just being hearers, but being doers. And so I pray, Lord, for these students and for the leaders in this room that as a ministry of college students, we would think about who we're talking to this week. It's a radical thing to call you our father. It's a blessed thing. We don't want to treat that lightly. We don't want to treat that flippantly or casually. We want to come before a holy God who is also our father and treat you with the reverence that you deserve, with the honor and the respect of Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room of heaven but the intimacy of how Jesus taught us to pray. Abba, Father. I think about Micah last night. And that's how I end this prayer. Is Daddy, Abba, Father, we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Trail Magic is a production of the College Ministry of Alliance Bible Fellowship in Boone, North Carolina. For more information, go to abfboone.org. Thanks for tuning in.